All right, we're going to be in Mark 7 this morning, Mark 7, verses 24 through 37. And in studying this text, it has become one of my favorite, and I hope this morning that you will fall in love with it also. I think uh, the old hymn by Charles Wesley captures well the rhythm and the trajectory of this pericope, and so I'll share a few stanzas of it with you this morning. He writes, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Hear Him, ye deaf, His praise, ye dumb. Your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. My gracious Master and my God assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. I hope this morning that after we've worked through this text, that this section of Scripture leaves us all with a desire to sing of the glories of our King, the healing of His hands and the wisdom and the triumphs of His grace. So let's, uh, let's get after it this morning. As we do so, the question I want you to consider is this. How do I approach God? How do you approach God? Our one big thing this morning, or that which I want you to think about throughout the week and as we work through the text, is kind of an answer to that question. It says, true disciples approach Jesus with bold humility and receive life. True disciples approach Jesus with bold humility and receive life. We're going to work through the text in two parts. We're going to look at a clever word in verses 24 through 30 and a knowing look in verses 31 through 37. Before we get started, would you pray together with me? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be present with us this morning and that you would uh, calm our hearts and uh, ease our minds. Help us to focus solely on you during this time. Rid us of all the worries and anxieties and cares that we often carry around with us constantly. Help us to experience your peace this morning as we listen to your word. Help us to hear it. Help us to understand it. Help us to taste and see that you are good and that you've prepared a table for us and that your blessings are abundant, so much so that the cups of our lives runneth over. We thank you for all these things, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. So a clever word with verse 24. And from there he arose, that's Jesus arose, and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. Jesus has just finished up correcting the misunderstanding of the Jewish religious leaders, teaching that people can't make themselves right with God or clean before him. And we talked about that last week. And Jesus said you can't make yourself right with God at all, let alone by keeping these religious rituals or by hand washing. So needless to say, things are getting a little bit tense and the momentum towards the cross is swelling. So Jesus heads out of town. It's actually kind of smart. People are trying to kill him, getting a little bit tense. And and so he heads out of town to let things cool down 
just a little bit. And two primary reasons are suggested for this. One is that it's not yet the appointed time for that inevitable showdown that will result in his crucifixion. And the second is in order to spend some time resting. If you remember a few weeks back, him and the disciples tried to get away for a little bit of R&R. We said it was kind of like a a camping trip. They were going to make some s'mores. He was going to teach them. They were going to rest and relax and get together with God. And then they got interrupted by a crowd of people that had outrun them there. And so it suggested that maybe he's going to get some rest, spend some time with the disciples. But I think the, the really interesting part of this departure is its direction. You see, Jesus heads north into Tyre and Sidon, and that's interesting because Tyre and Sidon are beyond the borders of Israel. In fact, they're inhabited by Gentiles. They have a long, long history of opposing Israel. Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically that any Jew could expect to encounter. Basically, the region is considered evil. It's the worst of the worst. Good Jewish boys wouldn't be caught dead there, yet this is where Jesus goes. His grace, like his kingdom, has no borders or boundaries. Jesus could have easily, I mean, imagine, worked it out, to retreat somewhere desolate in Israel, But instead, he heads to Tyre and Sidon. Significant in a few ways. One of which will reveal itself later on, but for right now, the one we're going to consider is that this trip is missiologically significant because Jesus, by his travel, is expanding the scope and the reach of the Messiah well beyond what Israel ever expected. I mean, from a socio-religious perspective, Jesus' visit to Tyre universalizes the concept of the Messiah in terms of geography, ethnicity, gender, and religion in a way that is entirely unprecedented in Judaism. So this Savior is not just for one region or one people group or one nation. He's a Savior for all regions, all peoples, all nations. Think like Jesus, we should care for the nations. And so as we get ready to figure out the the story of this Syrophoenician woman and a mute man, I want to ask you, how are you involved in caring for all the nations? Do you pray for other countries, other people? Are you ever guilty of nationalism? that is believing the lie that Jesus is more concerned with the United States than he is with Canada or Japan or anywhere else. Jesus loves all the nations, and so should we. Look with me at verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. He could not remain hidden. She heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Once more, Jesus is interrupted, not by a crowd this time, but by a woman, and it's really an unlikely interruption. She is, after all, a Syrophoenician, a a pagan, a Gentile. 
And although she's not Jewish, Tyre's close proximity to Judea would have meant that she was aware of Jewish customs, which means that she knows that she has none of the religious, moral, and cultural credentials that are necessary to approach a Jewish rabbi. She's an unclean woman who has an unclean daughter with an unclean spirit. And they're in an unclean region. I think Mark has purposely placed this story uh, next to what we studied last week where Jesus said it's not what comes from the outside that makes a person unclean or defiled, but that which comes from the inside. And so what we'll see in this encounter, one of the things we'll see illustrated is that people aren't unclean, just like food isn't going to be unclean. She has no business approaching Jesus. Yet she comes with bold humility, asking persistently to conquer asking Jesus to conquer her daughter's demons. She's so persistent, in fact, that in Matthew's account of this, he records the disciples asking Jesus to send her away. I I love what, what Keller says here. He says, you know why she has this burst of boldness? Because there are cowards and there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there are parents. His parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage. Because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save her. It doesn't matter whether you're normally timid or brazen. Your personality becomes irrelevant. You don't think twice. You do what it takes. So it's not at all surprising that this desperate mother is willing to push past all the barriers to get to Jesus. We'll look at how Jesus responds to her in a second, but I wonder what God might do in your life if you pursued him in prayer as persistently as a desperate mother. I imagine that we rarely pursue God in this way because rarely do we let the reality of our need for his grace and his presence really weigh on us. So what is Jesus' response? Verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wait, wait, wait. Jesus said what? Some of you might be thinking, oh no, he didn't. But I'm telling you, yes, yes he did. He did so, he said this, don't give the children's bread to dogs with a wink and his tongue planted firmly in his cheek. You see, this parable from Jesus is exceedingly clever. On the surface, it appears to be an insult. See, dogs in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they're not the family pets that you carry around with you everywhere. Some of you may be in a little purse. They're they're wild and dirty scavengers. Dogs were associated with uncleanness because they ate garbage and corpses and everything nasty in between. Likewise, the expression was a term that, that would, people would use to judge others as worthless and or dispensable. And so it's a very contemptuous term. Jews usually used it almost as a racial slur towards Gentiles. Those dogs. So why does Jesus use it here? Well, sidebar before I answer. It should be noted that he doesn't use the typical word for dog because he's very clever. It uses a similar word that corresponds to our word for puppies. 
I think he does this in order to conjure up in the mind of the woman to whom he's speaking, not feral dogs, but a household pet, while at the same time causing the disciples to think of dogs, the scavengers. And so this word softens the blow in the mind of the woman, and as Doug Wilson says, pulls on the chain of the disciples just a little bit. You see, I think Jesus here is playing the part of a prototypical Jewish person, It's one of the few times that we see him act like a Jew. Think that perhaps he's even playing the role of a so-called clean teacher of the law. Maybe even a Pharisee. He responds to the woman with nationalistic, racially charged parable. He does this in order to draw out and expose the hearts of the disciples. And to show that faith can arise from the most unlikely of places. So set the scene in your mind's eye a little bit. Jesus and the disciples, they're trying to get some rest. The disciples are trying to learn a little bit from Jesus, perhaps over lunch is how it plays out in my sanctified imagination. And from the disciples' perspective, this filthy Gentile scum continues to interrupt their time together, begging that she be given what only Israel deserves, the attention of the Messiah. Upon hearing Jesus' response, I imagine the disciples, they had some mental cheering going on that was probably almost audible. I'm sure they suppressed some deriding chuckles as they thought, yes, send that dog away. Jesus would be exposing the racism in their hearts. They just don't know it yet. Just as this evil that's in their hearts spills out into grins on their faces, the woman speaks. Her response gives the disciples some whiplash and smothers out the flames of their pride and racism. This is what she says in verse 28. She answered him, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. This dog hears understands, and is revealed to be a child of God. She does what Jesus commands of those who would receive the kingdom and experience the word of God. She enters into the parable and allows herself to be claimed by it. She answers Jesus from within the parable, that is, in in the same terms by which Jesus addressed her, thus indicating she is the first person that we've come across in Mark to hear the word of Jesus And to understand it. She understands this clever word from Jesus. She knows that he hasn't denied her. He never denies her. He simply states that his mission is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. You see, God cares for the children of Israel deeply. But he also cares for puppies under the table. Jesus concentrated his ministry primarily on Israel for all sorts of reasons. He was sent to show Israel that he was the fulfillment of all Scripture's promises, the fulfillment of the prophets, the priests, and the kings, the fulfillment of the temple itself. But after he was resurrected, he immediately says to his disciples, Go unto all nations. You see, the Messiah of Israel has a power that goes beyond Israel's borders, has the power to change unclean children of wrath and unworthy dogs, into children of God. Jesus is is simply saying to her, 
There's an order here, just like in a family. First, kids eat with the family at the table, and then afterward, their pets eat too. It wouldn't be right to give the puppies food and then then feed the kids. This mother replies to Jesus' statement with a bold humility. Even dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Her response shows that her understanding, that, that she has an understanding and an acceptance of Israel's privilege. Indeed, she understands the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does, it seems. Her pluck and persistence are a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus. His provision for the disciples and Israel will be abundant enough to provide for them and for one such as herself. She basically says, puppies eat from the table too. And I'm here for mine. I understand I'm not from Israel. I don't worship the God the Israelites worship. I don't have a place at the table. I accept that. But even though I don't have a place at the table, there's more than enough food. There's more than enough for everybody in the world, and I would like mine now. And Jesus responds to her by commending her faith. In Matthew's account, Jesus calls her faith mega faith, if we were to translate it woodenly. And he dismisses her with the assurance that her daughter is healed. I mean, this is a magnificent picture of salvation. Aiken comments, Yes, Lord, we are all dogs under the table with no rights whatsoever as members of the family. We must all say, I acknowledge I don't deserve a place at the table, but I believe there's enough even for me. Just a few crumbs will be enough to satisfy. Then in amazing grace and mercy, our Savior lifts us up, no longer as dogs or sinners, but as children, those that are saved. No longer under the table, but now a member of the family at the table. It really is amazing that this woman isn't offended here. It's amazing that she just doesn't walk away or shout something like, I don't need this right now, to storm out. Instead of standing up for her rights or maintaining her dignity or asserting her goodness, instead of saying, this is what I'm owed, you're the healer, so heal me, she says to Jesus, give me what I don't deserve. Not on the basis of my goodness or of my begging, but on the basis of your own goodness. Give me what I don't deserve because you're good. She understands the gospel. She understands that we are all more wicked than we ever dared believe and at the same time more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. She believes that Jesus can make all things well and she approaches him with bold humility. She receives blessing. She illustrates that all people are unclean, Jews and Gentile alike. And that those who approach Jesus with bold humility, asking for the salvation and the life that they don't deserve, inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, there is no favoritism, there is no racism in the kingdom of heaven. There is only a celebration of the diversity of those that have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So don't you dare look at another person and think of them as a dog because of race or nationality or or whatever. Love them as one that bears the image of God. Love them as you have been loved. And do not forget that only those that are willing to see themselves as dogs will be transformed into children of God. Are, Are you willing to be poor in spirit? Are you willing to see yourself as a dog that you might be transformed into a child? Are you poor in spirit? Before we move on, I would like to point out that this woman easily could have walked away, right? We said she easily could have just said, I'm I'm too good for this, too good to beg, I'm too good to be considered a dog. I think also she she could have just not come at all. All this Jesus, I've, I've heard of him, but I don't think that he can heal my daughter. Or she could have thought, maybe he can heal my daughter, but I'm unworthy of his love, unworthy of his help. See, there there are two ways to fail to let Jesus be your Savior, primarily. One is being proud and having a superiority complex. You don't accept the challenge or the assertion of the gospel that you are sinful and separated from God. You reject the idea that you're unable to save yourself. You think you're good enough, and so you're too good for the gospel and thus reject Jesus as your Savior. The other way is having an inferiority complex, wherein you become so self-absorbed that you say something to the effect of, I'm just so awful that God couldn't love me. This is a rejection of his offer. Those that reject Jesus this way usually express a low opinion of themselves, which is is right, but they also express a low opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. See, it's just as much a rejection of the love of God to refuse to seek him, to refuse to come after his mercy, to refuse to accept it, to refuse to be content with it as it is to say, I'm too good for it. So I say to you, approach Jesus with bold humility and ask for what you don't deserve, his great mercy and love. Ask him to make you who you were always meant to be, a worshiper of him. Let's look at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. Jesus' travel at this point makes zero sense. He goes north to Sidon before turning southeast to return to the region of Decapolis or the Ten Cities. Altogether, this horseshoe-shaped journey would have constituted about a 120-mile walk. It's really unusual. It's puzzling, in fact. It's kind of like going from Washington, D.C. to Richmond, Virginia by way of Philadelphia. Jesus' travel makes no sense. It's another indication of his willful inclusion of the non-Jewish world into his ministry. He's a Savior for all nations. And this fact is showcased once more as he is yet again approached in verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him 
to lay his hand on him. Notice they approach Jesus much like the Syrophoenician woman. Persistently, boldly, humbly asking for the blessing of God. And they too will receive it. And taking the, the deaf man with a speech impediment aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his finger into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them not to tell anyone. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astounded, astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus knows exactly what this man needs, and he gives it to him. He enters into the man's world. He has a sweet compassion. Keller says that he's melt-in-your-mouth sweet at this point. He whispers to this man without words. He speaks to him by way of touch, type of sign language, if you will. He even pulls him off to the side. He's someone that's been different his whole life, and I'm sure at points was somewhat of a spectacle. So Jesus puts his arm around him. He takes him to a private place, and he talks to him in a way that he can understand. He touches him. The fingers placed in the man's ears and then removed meant, I'm going to remove the blockage in your hearing. The spitting and the touching of the man's tongue meant, I'm going to remove the blockage in your mouth. The glance up to heaven meant, it is God alone who is able to do this for you. Jesus wanted the man to understand that it's not magic that was healing him, but God's grace. And as indicated by his heavy sigh, Jesus identifies with this man deeply. I think a better translation might be, he moaned rather than sighed. See, a moan is an expression of pain, which when I was looking at this text and studying it, you're led to ask the question, why would Jesus be in pain at this point? He's about to heal the guy, and we would expect him to kind of be brimming with gladness or have a little sly smile going on, like, I'm about to heal you, dude. It's going to be awesome. But instead, he's sighing, groaning, moaning almost. (sighs) I think that instead of excitement, there's palatable anxiety. Jesus seems to sense a bitter sweetness hanging in the air. Think that the connection between Jesus and this man is much more intimate than meets the eye. See, Jesus understands this man's alienation and his isolation at a personal and emotional level. There is a deeper identification going on. You see, as Jesus is healing him, it's becoming evident to him that there is a cost for this healing. See, Mark is signaling the reader to the fact that the healing has a cost by use of a Greek word. Again, I usually don't bring up Greek, but it's been important recently. The word is magilelos. Magilelos. By using this word in his description of the man with a speech impediment, he points us to another section of Scripture because this word only occurs once elsewhere in the Bible. And it's in the description of, of the revelation of the glory of the Lord 
to the nations in Isaiah 35. Remember, we read it earlier this morning. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the tongue of the dumb, Magilelos, shout for joy. The presence of Magilelos in verse 32 links our story unmistakably to the Isaiah quotation. This is why when, Jesus, or when John the Baptist asked Jesus, are you the one to come or should we expect another? Jesus responds to him with not just, yep, I'm the Messiah, but with, by saying the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. We're being pointed to the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. Jesus is fulfilling this scripture. You know, the first part of chapter 35, it says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with singing. The glory of Lebanon. Did I mention the regions that Jesus is in right now, Tyre and Sidon? That's Lebanon. Same region. It's where he is right now. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The deaf hear. The mute shout. The lame leap. God has come to rescue humanity. Jesus Christ is God come to save us. Mark wants us to think about something else here too. You see, the Isaiah 35 prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling says, the Messiah will come to save us with, quote, divine retribution but notice jesus is not smiting people he isn't taking out his sword he's not taking power he's giving it away he's not taking over the world he's serving it we might be led to ask where is the divine retribution keller answers beautifully jesus didn't come to bring divine retribution He came to bear it. On the cross, Jesus would identify with us totally so that we might identify with him. On the cross, the child of God was thrown away, cast away from the table without a crumb so that those of us who are not children of God could be adopted and brought in. Put it another way. The child had to become a dog so that we could become sons and daughters at the table. Because Jesus identified like that with us, now we can approach him. The son became a dog so that we dogs can be brought to the table. He became mute so that our tongues could be loosed to call him king. Don't be too isolated to think that you are beyond healing. Don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. Don't be too despondent to accept what the gospel says about how loved you are. Come to Jesus with bold humility, asking him persistently 
for his blessing, that you might have a place at the table, that he might transform you from an unworthy dog to a child. Would you pray with me? Father, we do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. So we ask that you extend that mercy to us this morning, that you would be our joy, that we would come to you humbly but boldly, asking for what we don't deserve and only you can give, true satisfaction, true salvation, true life. Father, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we love you this morning. Amen.